in the conversation, one way or another, I'm going to let slip that, you know, one day I had to give Hank Aaron some tips on how to bat the ball, you know, or if I want to try and emphasize to you that I'm a great rock and roll guitarist, then maybe at some point during, you know, the, during the uh, cocktail party, I'm going to just mention to you that there, there was a time when I had to rebuke Jimi Hendrix for uh, playing with his guitar out of tune, you know, it's not a way of putting them down. It's a way of emphasizing how great they were. Welcome to another rock solid and yet stone cold episode of On the Journey with Matt and Ken. I'm Matt Swaim. He's Ken Hensley. We are with the Coming Home Network. Come visit us at chnetwork.org. That's where you can find all kinds of resources related to people who have been exploring the Catholic Church from every background you can possibly imagine. Some who are Catholic and left, some who are never anything at all, some who are various degrees of Protestant like Ken and myself. He was a Baptist pastor. I was an evangelical indie rocker. So... However you happen to be comported at this stage in your life, we would love to converse with you. So chnetwork.org, especially come visit us at the community, which is community.chnetwork.org. Ken, we are still on Peter today, and we got a lot more to say. Still on, still on. We just started. I know. Well, I mean, when it comes to these episodes, you know, we tend to stay on something for a little while. So we got to revisit well, Pre- as I was Peter saying today. to you um, before we went live here, you know, I like us doing the autobiographical style of apologetics. I also like doing it inductively, you know, so that rather than sitting here and saying, okay, um, the Catholic Church's teaching on the papacy is true. Here's my proof. Now A, I'm going to prove D, it. E, F, that, that kind of thing. You know, I like, to, uh, I like to move along in scientific fashion, presenting an inductive case so that people can reflect a, a, a bit more on the actual facts and the data that, that lie behind it. So, yeah, we've begun, we begun talking about Peter and the papacy. Um, last week, you and I focused on the extraordinary prominence in the Gospels of Peter and what this communicates to us. I mean, again, Peter is referenced in the Gospels not 20% more than the second runner-up among the 12, which is John, not 30% more, not 50, not even 100%, not even 200% more. Peter is referenced in the Gospels. Well, in the New Testament, it's uh, close to 700% more, but it's five, 600% more than the closest one. So, you know, Peter is, has this extraordinary prominence in the Gospels. And we looked at that yesterday and we looked at what it communicates to us. And what it communicates is this. Given that the gospel authors are writing these memoirs of Jesus and the apostles 30, 40 years after the events, the fact that Peter figures so prominently in their narrative says something to us about what they thought of Peter at that time. And that is, it communicates clearly that in their minds, Peter was the most important of the apostles, most important of the disciples. He was the leading role. Um in, yeah. in every case. And again, this is the this is the Gospels that we were talking about last week. Right? Yes. We were talking about when Jesus is on the earth, the way that Peter is treated, even when Jesus is around, is still clearly as a he second, ranks first. Second he, in command. He to ranks Jesus first. Just as in every listing of the uh, the disciples, it's first Peter. 
he ranks first. Okay, now what we're doing today is we're moving forward then from the Gospels into Luke's Book of Acts and looking at the earliest history of the early church where we find our impression, the impression we got last week, fully confirmed. It becomes clear that Peter did indeed rank first among the apostles and was in fact the leader of the earliest early church. And that's what we're going to do today is kind of walk through the evidence from the early chapters of the book of Acts. And we'll be kind of rifling through this. Uh, we can comment as we see fit along, along the way, but basically moving chapter by chapter. So we open Acts chapter 1, and we find Peter assuming leadership right away, calling for the selection of a replacement for Judas in the apostolic band. And I'll read a portion of the narrative. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter, Peter first again, Peter and John, James and Andrew. Once again, we see Peter named first, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot and Judas, the son of James. All these with one accord devoted themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brethren. The company of persons was about 120. And Peter says, brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who was guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. At that point, two men, of course, are put forward and Matthias is chosen. And the thing that I want noticed at this point is simply this. It is Peter who stands up among the twelve it is Peter, whom, among the 11 at that point, it's Peter who makes the call that another must be chosen to replace Judas. Well, how does he know that? Why does there have to be 12? It's Peter who specifies that the one chosen has to be someone from among those who had traveled with them and with Jesus from the beginning and witnessed all that had occurred. Peter is clearly in command of the, of the situation and assumes Peter his command. Peter is also interpreting the Old Testament witness Yes. On behalf of his brothers. Just a little side point in there. He's looking to the reference yeah. point of King David and saying, brothers and sisters, as you know, as we know from King David, this is how it's got to be. I mean, Peter is not just saying this like, hey, guys, I'm yeah. Peter. And now that Jesus is gone, you're going to listen to every word that I have to say. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, he's he's assuming uh, and with some level of comfort a trust that has been given to him, not just by Jesus, but by the witness of the Davidic line leading up to Jesus uh, yeah. and that promise. Yeah, and as we go chapter by chapter in Acts today, we're going to be looking at such wonderful, all of them wonderful stories and long narratives, which I felt like I had to cut out here and there. But yeah, he, he, there's a great quotation that he um, that Peter makes from the Old Testament and applies this to the situation. Well, okay, one could say at this point, okay, Hey, Ken, hey, Matt, it could have been any one of the 11. I mean, Thomas could have been the one to stand up, could have been Bartholomew, could have been Nathaniel. It just happens to have been Peter, except, and we're going to see this right now, um, the pattern of Peter appearing as the leader continues 
And it continues as a pattern, a pattern that is easy to perceive. Because as we turn the page to Acts chapter 2, just flip over one page in our book of Acts, we find that it is Peter who is the first to stand up amidst the 11, or now the 12, and proclaim the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection to the Jewish people in Jerusalem. And we all know the situation, the, the historical context. It's the day of Pentecost. The city of Jerusalem then is crammed with Jews that have tra traveled from the diaspora all over the Roman Empire to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Pentecost. The 11, along with Mary and the others, as we've just read, are gathered in the upper room. They're praying when the sound of a rushing wind fills the room and something, I, I've often wondered, what in the world did they see? It's a, it, the text says something that appeared to them as though it were tongues of fire descended on each one of them and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Then apparently they left the upper room and they went out into the, where, the, where the crowds were and they began to speak of the mighty works of God with the people that were gathered there. People are amazed because although they come from everywhere throughout the Roman Empire, they're Parthians, Medes, Elamites, all these people, and although the apostles are all Galileans, the crowds hear each of them speaking in their own language. And in in their own tongues, as it says in the in the text, which yeah. is, I've always found that fascinating. I need to go back through the scriptures and see if there's any other place in the scripture where fire is referred to as tongues. Yeah, right? tongues of fire. I, tongues of fire, and yet they go on speaking. And everyone I mean, this is what it appeared, tongues, right? Yeah, right. This is how it appeared to them. So I, I don't right. know what it... Well, anyway, in verse 12, this is what we read. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? Others were mocking, saying, they are filled with new wine. But then, oh, well, guess who? Peter, standing with the 11. That's kind of a little hint right there. Peter standing with the 11. You know, it's Peter and the 11. And that's what we saw in the Gospels last week, too, that often the band of disciples is simply described as Peter and the others, or Peter and those who are with him. So Peter standing with the 11 lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And leaping off from the prophecy of Joel, Peter goes on to preach the crucifixion and the resurrection. And he concludes, quoting again, Let all the house of Israel therefore know assuredly that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And Matt, this is only like 50 days after the crucifixion. And it's in the very city in which Jesus was crucified, speaking to the crowds of Jews, the very people who had said, crucify him, crucify him. May his blood be on our heads, you know, or on our hands. With this, the crowds are cut to the heart, we read, and they cry out, what must we do? And this is where Peter says, famously, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So notice again how Peter's leadership is illustrated. It's Peter standing with the 11. He lifts up his voice to address the crowds. And when I read that, Matt, I, I remember watching the movie Braveheart. You've seen that film. Oh, yeah. Okay? Well, when you see the armies assembled in the fields, and then you see William Wallace ride out in front on his horse and begin in a loud voice to address the crowds, they may take our lives, but they'll never take yeah. our freedom, Ken. When you see it, 
My point is, you know who the leader is. I mean, you simply know, you know who the leader is. You don't have to say, well, who's the leader? Why is he the one on the horse? Why is he the one addressing the crowds? You know. Could be Kenneth Branagh giving the St. Christmas Day speech. It doesn't matter. You know who's you know who's leading yeah. the charge on this. Again, so can this goes back to something we were saying about, um, it might have been when we were talking about faith alone uh, and the whole series there, about mm-hmm. this idea of the perspicacious nature of Scripture that so many um, Christians believe in, that uh, any Christian can pick up and read and see the obvious mm-hmm. situation that's going on. Two chapters into Acts, the obvious situation is that Peter and the Silver Bullet Band, or you know, yeah, P- Peter is Peter is the guy who is leading this charge. He's the one who people are deferring to. He is the one who is the spokesperson for the team. Uh, he's the one who is the yeah. organizer of the meetings. And someone could argue, okay. We've only looked at Acts 1, and then we've looked at Acts chapter 2, and someone could argue again, well, it's just so far it just happens to have been Peter who led out in replacing Judas and who leads out to preach. Again, could have been Thomas, could have been anyone, except that this pattern continues. Flip over a one page again in your Bibles to Acts chapter 3, and we find Peter performing the first public miracle. Reading again, now Peter and John were going to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms of those who entered the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked for alms, and Peter directed his gaze at him with John and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention upon them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but I give to you what I have. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and walked and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And at this point, All of the people run together, astounded by what they have witnessed here. And once again, it's Peter, then, who begins to preach Christ in the temple now for the first time. So the pattern continues. Well, let's flip over one more page. What about Acts 4? Maybe the pattern breaks up here. In Acts chapter 4, it's Peter who is the first to profess the faith before the Sanhedrin, that is, the Jewish court after being arrested with John. Um, Now, when you read his sermon there, Matt, it probably didn't help a whole lot that in his sermon within the temple, Peter decided to include points such as the following. The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. I'm fighting words, Peter. I mean, amazing. I don't. I don't. I haven't heard preaching like that, or I don't hear preaching like that very often. But the point is, it, it, it's Peter that performs this massive miracle, the first public miracle, and then within the temple, it's Peter again that stands up against to preach with this with such power and authority. Peter and John are arrested at this point. They're brought before the Sanhedrin, including Anna. I mean, including Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, the very same men who condemned Jesus less than two months previous to this. They ask Peter and John, 
by what power or name did you do this, <laughs> this miracle? They see this miracle and the question they have is, by what power or name did you do it? And what do we read next? What do we read next? Guess who? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a cripple, by what means this man has been healed, be it known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This is the stone which was rejected by you, builders. This guy with the boldness is unbelievable, but which has become the head of the corner, the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It's intense. I mean, and think about, okay, so uh, it's not just, well, these are some amazing stories related to Peter and his courage and, and everything else. He's also uh, doing the same exact kinds of things. You know, when Jesus says you will do things, mm-hmm. you know, you'll do what I do, but you'll do even greater things than me. So Peter is um, preaching boldly. He's performing miracles, right? Um, he's standing up and challenging the rulers so that the rulers of the you know synagogue don't like him and want to see what they can do to him to suppress him. I mean, he's following exactly in the footsteps of the guy who commissioned him to be an apostle. Yeah, and here's something that strikes me, Matt, is that pretty soon we're going to read that that signs and wonders were being done by all the apostles. But the key is Peter is the one that's being described in chapter after chapter as the one who has assumed uh, leadership, the one who does, in fact, stand up and lead. He's the one who calls for a replacement for Judas. He's the one who first preaches to the Jews in Jerusalem, performs the first miracle, preaches to the Sanhedrin. And you think, well, maybe this pattern will end. Well, we flip over one more page to Acts chapter 5. And what do we find? We find that it is Peter who is the first to exercise church discipline, discipline within the church and of the most authoritative nature. Now, this is not exactly... um, passage that I select as bedtime reading for my grandchildren, and I'm not going to take the time to read the narrative on this one, but you know the upshot. You've read it many times and heard it. A man named Ananias lies to Peter and the other apostles. Peter says to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And Ananias falls over dead in Peter's presence. A bit later, his wife Sapphira comes into the room. She tells exactly the same lie to Peter and she also falls over dead. Now, we're not told that Peter said, fall over dead. They just simply lied to Peter, and they they fell over dead. They fell over dead. Again, Peter appears in in another facet as the clear leader of the church, exercising discipline within the church. I want to sort of point out a little bit about what Acts is and and where it comes from, because I think it's sort of helpful to know, because some people will say, well, yeah, Ken, this is all the beginning of Acts. We all know the star of the second part, the second act of Acts is, right? It's it's Paul. Um, But it's also, I think, important to to note that, you know, there are many people who wonder about, you know, the sources for Luke's gospel and, and would say that, you know, 
one of Luke's primary sources for the gospel was Mary herself, right? Mm-hmm. Because she's there in the upper room. It's Luke who gives us the accounts of the Annunciation, the Visitation, um, you yeah. know, the finding in the temple. A lot of stories that, you know, you would expect like a mom to tell, mm-hmm. <laughs> right, mm-hmm. in, in, in Luke's gospel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then here in the early church, we know that Mary was in the upper room. We know that, uh, you know, a lot of these things that were happening are happening in the community, that first group of early Christians. So if Luke is using you know, Mary as a source, it would make sense for him to have a lot of Peter-heavy stuff there in the beginning for these early days, before Luke takes up traveling with Paul. Yeah, and I'm glad you mentioned the traveling with Paul, because yes, in the second half of the book of Acts, Paul's missionary journeys become the the main focus for the remaining chapters of Acts. And, and, and that's explainable, obviously, because Luke, who wrote Acts, was a traveling companion of Paul. But the, the thing that's important is, when Luke is writing a history of the early church, though, as early church, Peter is clearly the leader. Peter is clearly from the day focus. one. From, day, from one. day one. From day one. Now, um, in the same chapter, we're still in chapter five of Acts. We read that amazing signs and wonders were being done by the apostles, all of them, healings and so forth. And yet, it's the miracles of Peter that are emphasized throughout. In fact, Luke tells us, and I'm quoting here from Acts chapter five that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and pallets, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. Apparently, this is all it took. I mean, Peter's shadow was healing the sick. All you had to do was run around and get the sun at the right angle and just dive in, you know, to Peter's shadow and you were healed. So, I mean, again, you know, evidence of this... uh, of this position of unique authority and leadership that we see in Peter. Well, filled with jealousy at this point, the Sadducees, including the high priest, they have the apostles arrested again. An angel opens the door and lets them out. Again, they're taken captive and they're brought before the high priest who says, I'm quoting now, we strictly charged you not to teach in his name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. I mean, that's an interesting little aside could go on. I mean, didn't the crowd say his blood be upon us and our children? And our and that, children, yeah. Yeah, in 50 days or, or you know, two months later, it's here you are claiming that we yell, yelled crucify and you're intending to bring his blood upon us. Okay, then it says, but Peter and the apostles. Again, it, Peter and the apostles. But Peter and the apostles said we must obey God rather than men. So they were all saying it, but it's Peter and the apostles, just like it's William Wallace and his armies. His Scotsman. His Scotsman. Yeah. I mean, or, or like any of the bands that we were arguing about last week that have a front man where it's like so-and-so, Eric Clapton and Cream. Well, who else is in yeah, Cream? Come, uh, you come might know. It, come to think of it, who is the front man for Kinks? Does anybody on earth even know? <laughs> Don't ask me. I just listen okay. to the songs sometimes. All right. Okay. Anyway, it's Peter and the Apostles. All right. We're going to skip over Acts chapter 6 and 7 because in 6 and 7, we have an aside to Stephen. You know, the, the formation of the diaconate, focusing then on Stephen and his wonderful speech and, and Stephen being stoned, the first martyr of the church. But when we come back to Acts chapter 8 then, it's Peter who is sent with John with, John with him. It's Peter who is sent to confirm the first converts in Samaria. And then in Acts chapter 10, It's Peter who is led by the Holy Spirit to welcome the first Gentile converts into the church. So just quickly, get the picture. Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost and welcomes the very first Jewish converts into the church. 
In Acts chapter 8, he is confirming the very first Samaritan converts. In Acts chapter 10, Peter is sent on a mission to welcome the very first Gentile converts into the church. Again, an amazing story that we don't have time to read, and I'm hoping that most of you listening or watching kind of know the basic outlines of the story. It's the house of Cornelius, the Roman centurion. Peter receives a vision and is told to go to the house of Cornelius and preach. Now, Peter has never even entered the house, the home of a pagan in his life. I mean, isn't that amazing to think? But as a Jew, as a faithful Jew, following the laws, customs of Moses, he had never even entered the home of a Gentile. Well, he travels to, to Caesarea. He enters the house of Cornelius. He preaches, and while he's preaching, the Holy Spirit falls on everyone in the house, Acts chapter 10 tells us. To which Peter responds, Can anyone forbid water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And uh, no one complains. They're baptized. He welcomes them into the church. And so, so again, Peter receives the first Jewish converts. He receives the first Samaritan converts. And he is sent to receive the very first Gentile converts. This is not, I mean, within the context of what we've seen so far, I would suggest this is not a coincidence. Uh, it's, it's not, not like, a well, it could, could have been Bartholomew. It could have been anyone. It's not a coincidence either the way Luke sets it up. Um and the way Luke chooses to reveal the narrative, because I did not realize until you were just reading this right now yeah. that, you know, Peter welcomes all the Jews into Christianity at Pentecost. Then he goes and he welcomes the first Sumerian converts, and then he welcomes Gentiles. I just remembered that that's the progression in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, hmm. when, uh, you know, Jesus in the recap of the Ascension says, you know, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea, and Samaria, and the ends of the earth. That's right. That progression. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. I didn't I didn't realize that until you started talking, so that's the amazing. The exact same concentric circles, and Peter is at the leadership of each one of them. Each one of them. Okay, now, this story doesn't really end. In Acts chapter 11 and 15, we see further evidence of the unique authority that Peter exercised within the church. Because after the events that occurred at the house of Cornelius, Peter travels back to Jerusalem, where he immediately faces a great deal of opposition from what he refers to as the circumcision party, which is a party that we have met several times in our series. A party we do not want to go to. No, it's a party that we don't want to go to. Right. Uh, You know, it's a a painful experience. Not a fun party. Okay. He faces this extreme opposition from the circumcision party, which which refers to the hardline um, Pharisaic converts, converts to Christianity from the Pharisees and typically from Jerusalem, okay? He faces this um, opposition and they say, or they, they, they challenge him, why did you go to uncircumcised men and eat with them? You know, how in the world, Peter, could you have entered the home of a Gentile, uncircumcised men, and eaten with them? Well, Peter relates the circumstances. Peter explains that it was God himself in a vision that that taught him um, that he had to go to Cornelius's house and that God is not a respecter of persons and that everyone who um, has faith in Christ is welcomed. He reminds them of all this and we read in verse 18, as this is chapter, chapter 11 of Acts, when they heard this, they were silenced and they glorified God saying, 
Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance unto life. I like so, how you put that, Peter, related the circumstances. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, the circumstance. Anyway, circumstances. notice, once Peter explains, though, they're silent. And we're going to see the word silent again in a moment, but I don't want to jump there yet. Okay, they're silence. They fell silent, and they say, well then, to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance unto life, and they glorify God. Okay, so far so good. Sounds like we're on a good course, except that this circumcision party continues to be a thorn in the side of the church. Um, and in Acts chapter 15, when we go from 11 to 15, we read that some of them now have traveled to Antioch from Jerusalem and have begun teaching that, well, I'll put it this way. Okay, Gentiles can be saved now, but in order to be saved, they need to become Jews. They need to be circumcised, and they need to begin to keep and live by the, the laws of Moses, the dietary restrictions, the keeping of the Sabbath, and whatnot, okay? They need to become Jews. A council is held in Jerusalem, which we've talked about several times in this very series on authority, to resolve this issue. And the key verses are verses 6 and 12, or 6 through 12. Listen, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter, and after there had been much debate, Peter rose and said to them, okay, mark that line. Okay, after there had been much debate. Okay, so the apostles and the elders are there. This one says that. The other one says the other thing. They go back and forth. A debate ensues. After there had been much debate, Peter rose and said to them, brethren, you know that in the early days God made choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, but cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you make trial of God by putting a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we shall be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And then hear those words, Matt. All the assembly fell silent. Okay. When Peter was opposed by the circumcision party the first time and he explained the circumstances, they fell silent and they glorified God and said, well, I guess the gospel is going to the Gentiles. Here we have a situation where debate ensues backwards and forwards. After the debate, the text says, Peter arises and he speaks. And the next thing we read is the assembly kept silence. At this point now, Paul and Barnabas go on to share more stories of their experiences preaching the gospel among the Gentiles, but the debate is basically over at this point. And then finally, James, who appears to have become the leader of the church in Jerusalem, there is a lot behind that, but he becomes basically the, the, the first bishop of the church in Jerusalem as Peter takes off and becomes a missionary and is traveling to other places. James proposes a practical solution that pleases everyone, and it's adopted but if you read the narrative carefully, the debate is ended, really, by Peter's standing and making this statement and the silence that follows. Even in the way that James addresses the room, um, when he you know, finally says sort of his piece as the leader of the local mm -hmm. church, right? He says, uh, Simon has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people from, for himself. So even in James's closing arguments, he cites you know, Peter. So. Yeah, that's a good point, especially since Paul and Barnabas 
you know, Peter have, spoke and have then probably Paul spent and a fair have been of telling, They've been telling stories. And instead of saying, Hey, Paul has just told us, he goes back to Peter. Yeah. Good point. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a term of deference. And again, you know, if you ring the bell, select, if you select this, yeah, to ring that, ring that bell. Uh, if you select this just by itself without reading anything else in the book of Acts, yeah. and some people, you know, want to do that and say, but, but it's obvious that everybody's on equal footing. Peter's on equal footing with Paul, who's on equal footing with Barnabas, who's on equal footing with James. It's James who makes the decision at the council of Jerusalem, mm-hmm. when in fact, it's kind of like, he's, he's just the local representative who's saying, you know, as the host of this meeting, um, yeah, I agree it, with our leader. Yeah. And given that a decision has been made, here, here's a good, here's a, here's how I propose that we, that we move forward with it. Yeah. It's like yeah. a, you know, I mean, and you've been to, uh, you know, events where you bring in a big speaker from outside and the big speaker comes out, but the pastor, the local pastor introduces them and says, all right, say your piece. And at the end, the pastor's like, well, thank yeah. you. Uh, everybody give so-and-so a hand yeah. for the wonderful job that they, I mean, there's like a sense of like hosting going yeah. on with James. Yeah. Yeah. And the point is, I mean, it's very, very clear that from the beginning, Peter is the leader of the church as it is in Jerusalem at the time. But as the church begins to move out and Peter begins to function as a missionary and leave, because he goes up to Antioch and he goes eventually to Rome, James becomes the bishop of the church in Jerusalem. So it makes sense even on that level that James is beginning to rise and to kind of become the main person staying right there in Jerusalem in the Jewish church. Okay, now, before summarizing the import of what we've looked at today, Matt, in these chapters of Acts, I want us to look at one last passage. We're going to look at more passages next week, but one last passage, this time from Paul's letter to the Galatians. In the first chapter of Galatians, Paul tells his, essentially his conversion story. He's on, you know, he's on the journey home show. He relates how he had previously hated and persecuted the Christians, but how he had met Christ on the road to Damascus, how he had spent some time in Damascus then learning and beginning to teach, how he had gone to Arabia. And then he says this, quoting now from Acts, I mean from Galatians 1, verses 18 and 19, after three years, that is three years spent in Damascus and Arabia, I went to, up to, to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, to visit Peter. After three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And why does Paul travel to Jerusalem to visit with Cephas? Just let and, that hang, and, I guess. And James, ostensibly. Yeah. And why does he travel to Jerusalem to visit with Cephas? Why does he remain with Cephas for 15 days? Why does Paul make a point of saying that he went to see Cephas, Peter, and spend 15 days with him? Now, some... Protestant apologists will say, okay, so Peter is definitely an important figure in the early church. When Paul travels to Jerusalem, he makes it of first importance to meet with Peter and to stay with Peter. But he certainly wasn't that ex- that important because just a little while later in Galatians in chapter two, we're going to read how Paul had to rebuke Peter to his face for acting like a hypocrite. Because, you know, before the Jews, that is the circumcision party from Jerusalem, before they had traveled to Antioch, Peter would sit and eat with the Gentiles' converts, with the Gentile converts. But once these, um, you know, once the hardliners showed up, he backed away. And Paul had to rebuke him to his face. In fact, the text says, this is Paul's words, when, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, 
because he stood condemned. Okay, and so the argument is, Peter was important, but he wasn't that important. I mean, Paul rebukes him. Paul sets him in his place. But the argument that I want to make here, Matt, is that when you think of this incident in its context, I don't believe this incident argues against Peter's importance and authority. I think it does exactly the reverse. I think that it emphasizes it. And, and to explain why, we have to drop back into the context slightly. It's easy to see, anybody who reads the letter to the Galatians can see, Paul's chief concern in this letter is to assert his authority as an apostle and the authority of the gospel that he preached. Because he came and preached to them and they were converted. Since that time, people from the circumcision party have come in and are disturbing them. And, and Paul needs to assert his authority, okay? And so Paul begins this whole letter by, by insisting that, that his authority is an authority that came to him directly from Jesus Christ and a revelation from Christ. This is what he says. Galatians 1 verse 11, For I would have you know, brethren, that the gospel which I preached, which was preached by me, is not man's gospel, nor did I receive it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, so once you understand this context, Matt, I just ask you, how better to emphasize his authority as an apostle under Jesus than for him to relate a story about how he stood up to even Peter? And rebuked, rebuked even Peter. I mean, well, it, it, I mean, if I want to make the point, if I want to make the point to you that I'm a great baseball player, then in the conversation, one way or another, I'm going to let slip that you know one day I had to give Hank Aaron some tips on how to bat the ball, you know. Or if I want to try and emphasize to you that I'm a great rock and roll guitarist, then maybe at some point during you know the during the uh, cocktail party, I'm going to just mention to you that there there was that time when I had to rebuke Jimi Hendrix for uh, playing with his guitar out of tune, you know. It, it's not a way of putting them down; it's a way of emphasizing how great they were. You wouldn't have even mentioned them unless you knew that their name carried some weight in the conversation. That's right. Um, but but with that too, I mean, it's if Peter was just some other guy. Uh, then why would Paul go and spend 15 days with him, you know, on this matter? Uh, obviously, he knew that Peter was the guy, Yeah. Uh, especially in regard to this question. I mean, Peter is the guy who, just as Paul has gotten a revelation from God about, mm -hmm. you know, Jesus Christ and, and been divinely inspired, he knows that Peter's gotten this same thing about the Gentiles. Yeah, right? and so by, by saying that he's visiting Peter— in other words, what he's basically saying to the crowd is, listen, the gospel that I preached to you came directly from Christ. And if you don't like that angle, let me share with you that I went to Jerusalem and I spent 15 days with Peter. I talked to the boss Peter. about this. I, I spent 15 days with him. And so certainly if my gospel wasn't the right gospel, I would have found out during those 15 I days. I walked right into his office and I told him, you can't treat my coworkers like that. Yeah, that's the... yeah the, Coworkers in the gospel. Okay, let's tie this together, though. Let's try to add together what we've seen here in the book of Acts with what we saw last week in the gospel accounts. Last week, again, we saw that when the gospel writers took up pen and ink, several decades after the resurrection of Christ, several decades after the founding, the, the, the inauguration of Christ's church on the day of Pentecost, the way they describe the events of Jesus' life and the life of the disciples shows us clearly that they viewed Peter as being the most important of the 12. Peter is at the heart of every important story in the Gospels. 
He's mentioned more than anybody. He's listed first in every listing. Even when they talk about the inner circle of Peter, James, and John, it's always Peter, James, and John. Okay, we saw this. In the minds of the gospel writers, at the time they wrote, Peter is ranks first. Okay, and now looking at the history of the early church in Acts, we see that Peter clearly did rank first in importance among the twelve. Peter leads in selecting a replacement for Judas. Peter is the first to stand up and proclaim the death and resurrection of Christ in Jerusalem to the Jews. He performs the first public miracle. He preaches, first of all, standing strong before the Sanhedrin. He exercises church discipline. Ananias and Sapphira fall over dead. He performs miracles that are just amazing. His shadow is floating over people and them being healed. He welcomes the first Samaritans into the church. He is called to welcome the first Gentiles into the church. He is the one who calls the Council of Jerusalem, in a sense, to, to silence by his statement. On and on it goes. He is the first. And so the question that I want to leave us with today that we will be begin picking up on last week is the question, why again? Why did the gospel writers see Peter as being the most important? Why do they portray him that way? Why do we find Peter being portrayed in the history of the early church in Acts as being the most important of the apostles? Why does Paul, when he travels to Jerusalem after his conversion, why does he seek out Peter? Why does he emphasize the fact that he spent 15 days with Peter? What lies behind this focus on Peter in both the gospels now and in the history of the early church? What lies behind this focus? Uh, that's the question we wanted to zero in on beginning next week. Yeah, and there's a, a lot to be said about that as we continue into more Yeah, I'm sorry to throw a muzzle on analogies. you like that because you're like, because you're like, no, there's so many like, things that could be said. There's all these things that we're not going to talk about. <laughs> but I've already Matt, said. Now to you. Said, yeah, I've yeah. already said we're not going to talk about it until next week. Sorry about no, that. But, but so if you have something it, to share, go ahead. No, all I was going to say is just taking it back to the idea of the perspicacious nature of Scripture. Uh, that so is argued by so many people who argue for Scripture alone. Yeah. If you're going to go Scripture alone, if you're going to also say that Scripture is absolutely clear in what it says, then it is absolutely clear from everything you mm -hmm. just said. Peter's in charge. That's right. We can we can talk That's about right. all That's those right. other things about what happened yeah. after he dies later on, but for the moment, if you're going to deny that Peter's in, jar in charge, you must have some like secret, crazy, weird interpretation of the Bible that is a total mystery to me. Because it is clear, that, yeah, that he's the guy. So, and the thing is, most things are clear in Scripture. This is certainly one of them. And I got to say, this kind of blows my mind, and it sort of humbles me because, because this is so clear. And yet, when I ask myself, what did I think of Peter back when I was a Baptist pastor? My answer would be, I didn't. Yeah, my mind is just sort of like, well. Yeah, and I knew he's mentioned more. He preached I, at Pentecost because he, he had like a personality that just kind of stood out. But um, the it. the narrative acts, you know, with some interesting Bible stories. I didn't connect them as a unified whole the way that you yeah. just did. Um, I was more interested in Paul and what did Paul say about the essence of the gospel? You know, what did he teach? Um, but the narrative, man, the narrative has got Peter all over it. So. Well, you're going to have to excuse me now because I'm I'm teaching a guitar lesson with Phil Kagi in, in an hour. Oh yeah, you you be sure to tell him uh, that he needs to maybe. I'm going to show him how to, especially how to play runs on the work on his time. blues scales a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So while Ken's off training, you know, 
Cocaine. One of the greatest greatest guitar players in the history of the universe. Uh, we'll go ahead and remind you one last time to go to chnetwork.org to find the Coming Home Network and all of our resources. And please do also come over to community.chnetwork.org. That's our online community. It's a closed community. It's separate from, you know, all those crazy other it's social not like media Twitter. outlets. It's not like Twitter. It's, it's not like a, Facebook. It's actually a kind environment. It's not like not like the Tumblr, like yeah. none of that stuff. It's not like Reddit. It's a kind and friendly environment. Come see us, community.chnetwork.org. I'm Matt Swaim. Ken Hensley, thank you. We'll talk to you soon. Okay.